Welcome to the top 10, where we explore some of the most influential films from different movie genres. I'm Vicky Sayers, and I'm joined by film critic and broadcaster James Cameron Wilson, and we are talking about children's films, James. We are. Now, this, this series I have based on my years as a critic and my understanding of cinema history. This is slightly different because most film critics tend to be over the age of 16. I would imagine so. Uh, and are not in the right headspace to actually evaluate children's films. Mm-hmm. So I did something very different this time. Okay. I asked my top 30 closest friends to come up. Well, I came up with the straw poll. Yes. And wanted to know, I suppose we're going into the memory bank here. Mm. I wanted to know what they remembered as their favourite films. So I talked to the old and the young and what... The only proviso I had was that Disney was not to dominate. Right. So I I tried to come up with an interesting top Mm ten based on this straw poll. And I was surprised by some of the films. I think particularly some that I saw as an adult. Yeah. And load them as an adult. (laughs) I I have included them here because these younger listeners obviously have a soft spot. Okay. So what are we starting with this time? Okay. Well... I have to include The Wizard of Oz. Of course. Which is so many... This was on every list. Mm. Everybody said, oh, The Wizard of Oz. It was the first children's film I saw. It's not Disney. As you know, it's M-G-M. Adapted from the L. Frank Baum children's book written at the turn of the century, 1900. I believe it's one of the most cited films of all times. And what do you mean by that? I mean... The characters, the references, the ruby red slippers, the quotes in the films. Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I see a lot of films, as you know, Mm -hmm. and I am surprised. There there seem to be two films which crop up over and over again. I have many friends of Dorothy, for instance, who love this film, along with many others, including the biography of Judy Garland. Mm -hmm. Judy, played by Renee Zellweger. But the other film that is cited a lot, Mm -hmm. that is alluded to, is Jaws. We're going to need a bigger studio. (laughs) Anyway, uh, her ruby red slippers, uh, Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, of course, was come from The Wizard of Oz. The classic song, Over the Rainbow. Mm. Not to mention the Three Stooges. Yeah. Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Cowardly Lion, Mm -hmm. which you see cropping up in commercials nowadays. Very true. It has so much in it. It's not my favourite film. It's been remade Mm -hmm. as The Wiz, a musical with Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, which was pretty dire. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't heard of it. But I did think the sequel, Oz the Great and Powerful, made in 2013, was actually rather good. Okay. With James Franco mm. as Oscar Oz Diggs, a two-timing carnival charlatan, all duplicitous smiles and some rather impressive ledger domain, with Mila Kunis, Rachel Weiss, and Michelle Williams as the three mm. witches he encounters in a magical wonderland. And like Wizard of Oz, it starts in black and white, and he arrives in this new Wonderland dumped by a tornado. And I think the film manages to capture a real sense of wonder and awe in the realisation of Oz's magic, packing a number of wow moments. So if even if you're not a fan of The Wizard of Oz, yeah. Oz the Great and Powerful, 
I thought was a jolly good second helping. Okay, very well. I noticed that you've basically focused your <laughs> your uh, critique on the uh, follow up. I suppose as I've to the seen original. it more recently. Yeah. Um, and basically, the Wizard of Oz was never a favourite. I should okay. mention, of course, Judy Garland as Dorothy mm-hmm. and Toto. Uh, was Toto a can? Yes. It, well, if that means dog. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because then the Wicked Witch says, I'll get you and your little dog too, which is something else that's always said. Oh, that is said. horrible. <laughs> you care more about the dog than the girl. <laughs> oh, well, just take the girl, but leave the dog. Okay, what's the next one? Again, it's a bit of an oldie, mm-hmm. probably before you were born. Certainly probably, do you born. mind? I see, I see how it is. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street, which has been remade twice, directed by George Seaton. 1947 mm-hmm. is the harrowing story of Chris Kringle who is being put on trial to prove that he really is Santa Claus, mm-hmm. played with an avuncular charm by Edmund Gwen, who won the Oscar that year for Best Supporting Actor. It's been remade twice, as I said, the second time in 1994 with a perfectly cast, you're smiling, Richard Attenborough. I love that one. Who instills his part with innate passion and mm. saintliness. I mean, Richard Attenborough was born to be Father Christmas, if I may use the Anglo term. Yes, of course. Rather than Saint Nicholas Mm -hmm. or Kris Kringle Mm -hmm. or Santa Claus. Yeah. Although I gather Santa Claus, we used to refer to Father Christmas as Santa Claus in the First World War. Oh, well, there you go. And Father Christmas is actually a newer term. Okay. Yeah, I was talking to a researcher of a recent radio series based Mm -hmm. in the First World War. Okay. Cool, but I didn't know there was another um, there was re- a TV rehashing one, of it. Oh, I see. Okay. Which we don't really count. But Let's there, not talk there's about so it. many TV remakes <laughs> yeah. in American uh, annals. Mm. And it's just one of those films, Maureen O'Hara as the little girl who's disbelieving of the Macy's Chris Kringle, mm-hmm. which is a huge department store in New York. It sure is. And uh, he ends up in court and has to prove himself. Yeah. What an enchanting film. Do you remember when films used to have charm? Yeah, I remember those times. Well, I mean, I haven't seen the original, but I have seen the... Did you say 1994? Yeah, I just love it. I love it so much. Um, Even now, because some things, you know, you watched as a kid, but you wouldn't watch again. I definitely still watch that now. Good. Yeah. 1994. Now, I'm going to go on a slight off the track, because I think this has to be mentioned. Okay. And if you don't know about it... I think you should. Yeah. Which is the Children's Film Foundation, which lasted between 1951 and 1985. It was subsidised by what was known as the ED levy, which was a tax off the box office receipts of certain films to be ploughed back into worthy causes, making films under an hour each for children's Saturday matinees. It included the great Michael Powell's last film, The Boy Who Turned Yellow, in 1972. Okay. And it produced an industry, and it was a great training ground for future filmmakers. And even the children in these films went on to do rather well. There was a very young Phil Collins, who went on to become a drummer, I believe. <laughs> I love Phil Michael Crawford. Oh, yeah. Dennis Waterman. Susan George. Gary Kemp. And Keith Chegwin all began making films in the Children's Film Foundation. As I said, it lasted from 1951 to 1985, so a lot of films. And I noticed critics alluding to the Children's Film Foundation where they're describing a new English 
family-friendly movie. So I, that has to be mentioned okay. when we're doing a programme on children's films. And I'm going to go back to the first film that I actually remember as a child. Okay. A long time ago. <laughs> Mary Poppins. Yes, Mary 1964. Mm-hmm. The original Mary Poppins, based on the P.L. Travers novel, of course, was Julie Andrews. And having been not able to play her Eliza Doolittle on, yeah. f- on film, and that went to Audrey Hepburn, she got landed with this film. Mary Poppins instead, and won the Oscar, whereas Audrey Hepburn didn't win the Oscar for playing Eliza Doolittle. There you go. Yeah, I remember Mary Poppins as well. And I think every child who went to see this back in 1964 had to be able to pronounce supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Try harder, James. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. There you go. See, I began to think about it. Don't think about it. It's written in... It's hardwired into my head. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> and of course, those magical songs, Chim Chimmery. Chim Chimney, Chim Chimney. Yeah. You're having issues with these, a these spoonful titles. Of sugar. There you go, that's an easy one. <laughs> I, want, I want to sing them to you, Vicky. Let's go fly a kite. Well, why don't we play that now? Oh, let's go. And that was David Tomlinson. And you didn't even have to sing it, James, so we both no. win. <laughs> it was also the first time I ever heard the word indubitably. I don't even remember it being that, but... I think it was Dick Van Dyke who said it. Indu- it would be like indubitably, indubitably or something. Indubi- of course, <laughs> well, actually Dick Van Dyke, Dick Van Dyke <laughs> got the Terrible action. It's become a thing of legend. <laughs> I think it's great. Poor man. He's never, had to, well, he's never been able to live it down. And of course, in the, in the sequel with Lin-Manuel Miranda. Is it any better? He plays a cheeky cockney much better. Okay. I think accents have generally improved. Yeah. Nowadays, and yeah. they used to be. They used to be, think they could get away with anything yeah, until Don anymore. Cheadle put on a Cockney accent in Ocean's Eleven. Oh yeah! Oh no! I forgot about that entirely. Did, yeah, that was. Did you remember who yeah, I'm ta- what yeah, I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we we digress somewhat. Sorry. Yes. I'm we going do. to talk about another film set in England. <laughs> okay. Based on the novel by E. Nesbitt, directed by the actor Lionel Jeffries, mm-hmm. uh, called The Railway children mm. i was i was a child when i saw this i was young enough were you a, a railway child 1970 i i wasn't um a train spotter <laughs> okay uh, but that came later on <laughs> uh, it made a star of the young jenny agatha who played the young bobby the three children whose father was locked away in prison under mysterious circumstances mm. and they had to make do with a mum on their own, mum played by Dinah, the wonderful, beautiful Dinah Sheridan. What's interesting, this was remade as well for television. Okay. But the mother in the remake was played by Jenny Agatha. Oh. So she played both Bobby and oh, the that's mother, nice. which is rather cute. Yeah. And of course, Bernard Cribbins as the station porter, Albert Perks, was a wonderful character one remembers growing up. It still, to this day, holds a 100% rating on Rotten 
tomatoes. No. Not many films do. No. Wow. Yet, The Railway Children, in spite of this, received complaints at the time for its certificate. Why is that then? Well, viewers complained that the film encouraged children to walk on railway lines. Mm, that is true. But this was, you must remember, this was in Edwardian days. And I think it was different then. It's a period piece. Yeah. And it is enchanting. And it also had, it was believable. So many children's films are not actually that credible. Yeah. But this had a, not a cinema verite, but it had a, a feeling that what was unfolding on screen really was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And the children also have to mention Sally Tomset and Gary Warren, names that I've remembered throughout my adult life. Just and from that, that film? Yes, just from oh, that Oh, wow. Film. Yeah. Sally Thompson did other things. I don't think Gary Warren mm. did much. And, of course, Jenny Agatha is still very much with mm-hmm. us, even in one of the Avengers films. Which one? I knew you were going to ask me that. I know she has a fight with Robert Redford. Oh. Was it a Captain America film? Oh, potentially. And I thought I'd, never, sure lived, I thought I'd never lived to see the day when Jenny Agatha would fight. Wow. Manhandle. No. Robert Redford I on seen, the ground. I must have missed one because I don't <laughs> remember that at all. That'd be something I'd remember. Yeah. Well, I'll have to look that one up. But anyway, back to children's films. Indeed. Um, again, this is a favourite, it appears to be. Not a favourite of mine. I actually prefer the remake. Willy oh, no. Wonka and the Chocolate Factory of 1971, directed by Mel Stewart, from a book by somebody called Roald Dahl, who oh, wrote a lot yeah. of books for children. That rings a bell, yeah. And he wrote the screenplay for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Oh, OK. And they added songs. And they slightly changed his screenplay, so he disowned the film. Really? Not that he hasn't made a tidy bundle of it, mm. but yeah, he walked off. He was very upset about it. That's and cheeky. looking back at it today, it is surprisingly dark. Really, yeah. it's about Charlie is a Charlie Bucket who is being brought up again in impecunious circumstances with his aged grandparents. Yeah, and he he really can't afford to buy candy or sweets, as we mm. say in this country. and But there are five special Wonka bars that have a golden ticket, which means you can visit Willy Wonka's factory, where apparently you see nobody go in or nobody leave. Mm. And if you get the golden ticket, you can have chocolate for life. A lifetime supply. Now, I think every woman I know would love that. <laughs> I think every person would, absolutely. Do you think men like chocolate? I think so. No, I don't know. I thought this was a woman thing. Well... No. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And of course, it lives on today, the song Imagination, sung by Gene Wilder, who is not wildly... I mean, Gene Wilder is a very cuddly man. He certainly is in the flesh. But Imagination has been used for was it the Audi A5 commercial. That's true. And again, for the Marriott Hotel commercial. Oh, interesting. But he always had a, a kind of threatening element to him in that film. Willy like Wonka he, himself. Like a, well, Gene Wilder playing it, yeah. Mm. He um, was had a kind of manic energy, like when they go through the tunnel and it goes really creepy and like everyone's on drugs. Oh, he does manic very well, Gene yeah. Wilder. So he's, I was never really sure whether I liked him or not because he's, you know, he's really out to get the other kids as well. Like when they misbehave slightly and then they end up, you know, one turns into a massive blueberry, the fat child gets stuck up the chocolate pipe. Um, this is dark stuff. Yeah, and Vicky. he's like, he's loving it. <laughs> like the parents are, you know, breaking down and he's just like, well, they shouldn't have misbehaved, you know. Well, children do like dark. And I yeah. think this is something that Roald Dahl has 
recognise, and I mean, all his films are dark. It's kind of like learning consequences, isn't it? Like the yes. early... don't watch too much TV. Mm, or you'll turn into, you'll get into the TV. So a character called Mike TV. His name is literally Mike TV, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, well remembered. Yeah. Okay, we move on to, I, I must ask you if you've seen this film. It was made in 1982, 11 years later, directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm, that guy. E.T., he's always cropping up. Yeah. It was called E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Have you ever seen this video? I have indeed. Oh, I'm very glad. Yeah. With Henry Thomas as Elliot. Mm. Do you know this was actually semi-autobiographical? <laughs> In what way? <laughs> well, Steven Spielberg wrote the storyline that Melissa Matheson, who went on to be the partner of Harrison Ford, she wrote the screenplay. But he had an imaginary friend who was an extraterrestrial. Only Spielberg could have an imaginary friend who was extraterrestrial. Sure. And I think it was during his parents' divorce, if I remember correctly, that he got very upset and he sort of conjured up this imaginary friend on whom he based the story E.T. Wow. Short for extraterrestrial, as it says in the title. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the government hear about E.T. and they want to grab him and experiment him on, as the government always does. They do. In the movies and probably in real life as well. It became the highest grossing film of all time and retained that position for 11 years Mm. until it was budged off the top rung by a film directed by Steven Spielberg called Jurassic Park in 19... So he outdid himself, literally. He outdid himself, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And, of course, Jaws was, I think, the most successful film for many years. He does well. E.T. the Extraterrestrial. It made a star, too, we mustn't forget, of Drew Barrymore, who was, nine, was year, nine years old at the time. I think she's Spielberg's uh, goddaughter. Oh, really? Mm. Nepotism at its best. She's a character called Gertie, and she's yeah. so sweet. She was it. sweet. It is one film that you can watch over and over again. And like The Wizard of Oz, many elements of it are repeated, whether it's leaving out the sweets for E.T., mm. the M&Ms, all that m- magical cycle ride in front yeah. of the moon, which became the sort of logo for DreamWorks. Mm. Yes, so it did. Yeah. I never even made that connection, but yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm going to talk about a film briefly that everybody I asked of the younger generation said, oh, we loved The Goonies. Mm-hmm. I didn't like The Goonies. I've never seen it. You haven't seen it? No. Okay. This is from a story by somebody called Steven Spielberg. Oh, my goodness, <clears throat> really? So having excluded Disney... Spielberg he's dominating, yes. Because he's so in touch with his own childhood. Yeah. The child inside him. It's an old-fashioned tale of a bunch of kids in search of hidden treasure. Mm-hmm. I found it insufferably noisy, uh, but for some reason, maybe it sort of gelled with the children at the time, and they liked that rambunctious kind yeah. of entertainment. Whereas maybe I was more sedate child and liked films like The Railway Children. But interestingly, there was a 16-year-old young actor at the time called Josh Brolin. Yeah. In 2018, his films made more money than any other actor on the planet. I wouldn't have expected that. Josh Brolin, he he does lots of films, but he kind of, for me anyway, does fly under the radar a little. He comparatively. would make a really good leading man. Yeah. He does he a film like Deadpool. No Country for Old Men, yeah. where he is the leading man in that. But everybody okay. remembers Javier Bardem as the villain. Yeah, that. I only remember him. But he's handsome, he's got a great sense of humour. But... The two films he made in 2018 made over, over, Vicky, $2,785,000,000 combined. Oh, wow. That is a lot of moolah. Yes. And, of course, he played Thanos 
in yes. Avengers Infinity War. And he, he was did. also the villain in Deadpool 2, yes. which was enormously successful. He was Cable in that. Mm-hmm. And the Goonies kind of... So he was, what, 16 at the time? Yeah, so that started it all off for him. Indeed. Uh, now, this is a film I believe you have seen. Correct yep. me if I'm wrong. Coming up, yep. Home Alone. And do you like this film, James? I loved it. But this is another very noisy film. I thought it was charming. It was funny. Okay, sentimental. I thought it was ideal entertainment for the whole family. Mm. I, bearing in mind, I actually saw it at a press show before it was released in 1990. I had no expectations whatsoever. And it completely took me by surprise. It's directed by John Hughes, who is the Chicago-based expert of the cinematic Christmases with the family genre. He almost made it a genre himself. Mm. And he made a lot of children's films, as he made teenage films as well. I just thought it was... I was wonderful. You beg to differ. No, I don't beg to differ. I was just interested because you said The Goonies was quite loud. And, of of course, there's lots of screeching and whizzes and bangs in this, isn't there? Because obviously... But it's all quite ingenious how... It is very clever. ...played by Macaulay Culkin, who went on to become hugely famous. Mm. And, indeed, his brother, Rory, is a very good actor, Rory Culkin. Who was also in that, wasn't he? He probably played one of the younger... He was one of the littler ones with the glasses, I think. (laughs) On a vacation to Paris, and they forget Kevin in the rush to get there. Because everyone doesn't like him. Not everybody likes Kevin. God, he was such a good-looking kid, wasn't he? I don't know. I find him kind of like... I I like the film, and I get why other people like it, but I found him kind of annoying. Like, he was cute, but just super annoying. Well, you weren't born in 1990. No, so I. You saw it in retrospect and you knew it was meant to be a good film. I saw this yeah. completely naked, so to speak. Yeah. From all emo- emotions. <laughs> from emotions, everyone. <laughs> okay. <laughs> everyone calm down. Um, but no, I, I love the, uh, the, the two kind of crooks in it. I think Joe they Pesci really, and really, Daniel Stern. really good too. Indeed. Um, and Ke- Kevin was thrilled to be left on his own. Yeah, absolutely. Go. Until I mean, they messed up. Because he all that junk food and. Dance Watch around, r- rubbish on TV, and, slide and, up and down the and corridors, put on aftershave. Exactly. Except then he, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I do like it, um, but yes, I just I sometimes find things like that just a bit annoying. Like they just the children are a bit too precocious, and it's just like. Ugh. At least it was just one child. Well, exactly. Un- unlike with uh, the Goonies, there's just too many. Multiple children. precocious and Corey children. Corey Feldman, who I've never liked. <laughs> okay. So now, I'm going to go one? on to a film that I adored. No children in this one, so we don't have to get annoyed. Well, there's a very young pig in it. Well, li- little baby animals are better than... And a pig with no name. Oh. They never gave Babe a name. So who names the pig? The sheepdog? Um, yes, this was based on Dick King Smith's 1983 children's book, The Sheep Pig. Ah. And it was sweet, but it was also very dry. And James Cromwell, who played... Was it Arthur Hoggart? Uh, Yes, I think it was Arthur Hoggart, who ended up with Babe. Mm -hmm. He got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. This is the highest grossing Australian film since Crocodile Dundee. (laughs) And at the time, it marked a real breakthrough for animatronic wizardry. And you actually saw the talking dog, the sheepdog, Talking Sheep, a duck named Ferdinand, <laughs> and the titular pig were all talking, and they were real animals. Now, this we're so used to this now, but one must remember that when Babe came out, this was totally new. Mm. And suddenly you've got a talking sheep dog, but it looks like the dog really is talking. 
And back then, believe me, in 1995, that yeah. was a, a revelation. I but just forget it. about the sequel, Babe, Pig in the City. Yeah. Now, this film I'm talking about, my number 10, yep. is one that I... Nobody has put this in their top 10, and it should be in their top 10. Okay. Because it's a film set in a world where, considering it was made in 2004, is quite extraordinary. That was a long time ago. Yeah, it doesn't feel like it, but it is. I think children's films have either a habit of condescending to their target audience or being cynically one-dimensional. Not so Millions, directed by Danny Boyle, which I thought was a thematically complex yet narratively straightforward masterpiece from the director of Slumdog Millionaire and oh, Trainspotting. And Trainspotting. That's an interesting... And yet he made a children's film. Mm. And I'm going to name drop, but I said to Danny... <laughs> Good old Danny. Millions is one of my favourite films of yours. And he was so thrilled because so very few people saw it. Mm. Um, it was imagining a world of magic in a marginally futuristic suburban Britain. The film is blessed by, I think, finding the extraordinary in the ordinary and the everyday. Yeah. Which I think children so often do. We as adults don't. We lose that ability, that magic to find the extraordinary in the ordinary. Um, And I I think the child actor called Alex Attell was absolutely brilliant. And obviously the camera loved his face. Uh, Was a huge asset, not to mention the computer technology. And the whole concept is around a prelude to what Danny Boyle called E-Day, when Britain is about to relinquish the pound in favour of the euro. Mm. Now, who would have thought in 2004 this could have been possible? Having just moved to a new housing estate after the death of his mother, young Damien is determined to make a good impression in his new environment, and he discovers a hold-all crammed with £229,320 worth of pound notes. Wow. And the pound is about to be junked <gasps> for this European euro. Yeah. So in a, in a strange way, it's incredibly prescient. And it's a juggling social commentary with magic realism as well, which I really liked about it. A very strong storyline. Um, it's an original and grown-up family film, which is equal parts wondrous, really funny, mm-hmm. scary at times, and children like that, thought-provoking, and very, very moving. Right. And I think, please, for the sake of Danny Boyle, this is one of his classic films, and he's made some really good films. You and I'm just so sorry. Have I sold it to you? Yes, I think you have. I actually did have a cheeky look online before we started this episode, and it does look like a nice film, but it has it did totally pass me by as well. Yeah, Perhaps so we should blame the it. advertising team. And uh, How much time have we got left? None. None at all? No. We've done ten. We have. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of the Top Ten. Join us next time for more.